Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, uh, December 5th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. The program features our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the calls by the Ethiopian government for the United States Embassy in Addis Ababa to halt the misinformation uh, being spread about the Horn of Africa state. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has said that there has not uh, been a surge in hospitalizations in recent days inside the country due uh, to the new Omicron variant of COVID-19. U.S. infectious disease specialist Dr. Anthony Fauci has given an update on the public health situation in the U.S. And the military junta in the Republic of Sudan has banned travel for a leading figure of the popular forces for freedom and change. In the second hour, we examined some of the attacks being made on the 1619 Project, uh, which was founded by Nicole Hannah-Jones. The South African Communist Party has delivered a briefing on its upcoming Central Committee plenary session. Finally, we review uh, some of the press 
to some of the most uh, burning, pressing, and burning issues of the day uh, in Africa and, indeed, throughout the international community. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude with Les Amazon de Afrique uh, from the album entitled Republic Amazon. Let's listen in.
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and that was uh, the music of uh, Le Amazon d'Afrique, a collection of uh, tracks uh, from their album, uh, Republique Amazon, and uh, they are the group, a uh, collection of uh, women uh, from various countries uh, in West Africa, the um, Amazon d'Afrique, and uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, we're going to go into our Pan African Newswise segment uh, for uh, today. And uh, our lead story uh, deals with the current uh, political situation in the Horn of Africa state of Ethiopia. And according uh, to uh, the Ethiopian Herald, Ethiopians and Africans have commenced a petition against the U.S. Embassy in Ethiopia and State Department notices to stop spreading irresponsible statements and psychological warfare on peaceful and stable uh, countries such as Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia's uh, friends of Ethiopia, Africans and the Addis Ababa residents are on the petition signatures against the terrorizing activities of the United States Embassy in Addis Ababa and the State Department's notice to leave uh, to Americans from Addis Ababa as if there will be a security problem. Many Americans did not accept the fake news-backed uh, notices. Accordingly, they are criticizing the Biden administration besides many others uh, keep traveling uh, to uh, Ethiopia. U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa posted uh, uh, terrorizing false information uh, 12 times in just four weeks through their official uh, Facebook social media account. However, with all these repeated warnings on social media, the security situation around Addis Ababa has not been extremely fluid and life goes on as usual, signatories are voiced. Signatories believe uh, this warning uh, is false. This warning is false and deliberately targeting, uh, and many fear that the blocking of commercial uh, activity uh, in and out of Addis Ababa. Terrorism is an international crime. Diplomacy has its limits and protocols. It is the time to say hashtag no more uh, to terrorism. We don't want Ethiopia to be another Libya or Iraq. We are sovereign and freedom-loving people. And that's uh, the statement uh, put out uh, by uh, the those opposing the false information being spread by the United States Embassy. They urged uh, the U.S. Embassy in Addis Ababa to stop 
decimating irresponsible statements and psychological warfare and terrorizing the citizens of Addis Ababa and the international community immediately. And uh, developments in the Republic of South Africa, President Cyril Ramaphosa said the health minister has informed him that the increasing cases of COVID have not led to an alarming increase in hospitalizations. The president, who is on a state visit to Accra, Ghana, briefed reporters about the developments while replying to questions regarding the travel bans imposed on South Africa by developed economies due to the recently discovered Omicron variant. Ramaphosa sought to allay fears of possible heightened dangers of the Omicron variant uh, by sharing the contents of his regular briefings uh, with Health Minister Joe Pala, told him that while the variant appears more transmissible, hospital admissions tell a different story. Quote, our hospital admissions are not increasing at an alarming rate, meaning that people may be testing positive, are not in large numbers being admitted to hospitals, and it is for that reason that I said that we should not panic, unquote, he told reporters. Uh, Ramaphosa has used the West African trip to criticize the banning of travelers from Southern Africa as he met with different state presidents in Nigeria, Ivory Coast, and Ghana. The tests uh, still have to be done, and the research still needs to be done. That whilst Omicron spreads, it does not seem to be resulting in greater numbers of hospital admissions. Uh, we should take the heart from that. It's going to be found all over. Uh, we now need to learn to live with the virus, Ramaphosa said. He added that vaccination rates need to increase as he once again hit back at the developed economies for having been, quote, greedy by hoarding vaccines. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, in regard uh, to uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic and the Omicron variant, the United States health officials uh, said earlier today that while the Omicron variant of the coronavirus is rapidly spreading throughout the country, early indications suggest it may be less dangerous than Delta, which continues to drive a surge of hospitalizations. Uh, President Joe Biden's chief medical advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci, told uh, the CNN State of the Union uh, that scientists need more information before drawing conclusions about the Omicron severity reports from South Africa where it emerged and is becoming the domain's dominant strain suggest that hospitalization rates have not increased alarmingly. Thus far, it does not look like there's a great degree of severity to it, uh, Fauci said. But we have really got to be careful before we make any determinations that it is less severe or it really doesn't cause any severe illness comparable uh, to the Delta variant. Uh, Fauci said the Biden administration is considering lifting travel restrictions against non-citizens entering the United States from several African countries. They were imposed as the Omicron variant exploded in the region, but U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has blasted such measures as travel apartheid. <clears throat> Hopefully, uh, we'll be able to lift that ban in a quite uh, reasonable period of time, Fauci said. We all feel very badly about the hardship that it has been put on, not only on South Africa, but other African countries. <coughs> Omicron uh, had been detected in about a third of uh, the U.S. states uh, by, by earlier today, including the Northeast, the South, 
the uh, Great Plains and the West Coast. Wisconsin, uh, Missouri, and Louisiana were among the latest states to confirm cases. But Delta remains the dominant variant, uh, making up more than 99% of cases and driving a surge of hospitalizations in the north. National Guard teams uh, have been sent to help overwhelm hospitals in western New York and in Massachusetts. Governor Charlie Barker issued an emergency order requiring any hospitals uh, facing limited patient capacity to reduce scheduled procedures that are not urgent. U.S. officials continued urging people to get vaccinated and to receive booster shots, as well as take precautions such as wearing masks when among strangers indoors, and anything that helps protect against Delta will also help protect against other variants. And finally, uh, in the uh, Republic of Sudan, Sudanese authorities uh, stopped the former Minister of Industry and leading member of the Forces for Freedom and Change, the FFC, Ibrahim al-Sheikh, from leaving the country, uh, pointing to a travel ban imposed by the Sovereign Council. Now, al-Sheikh was among the latest political detainees to be freed on November the 30th after his, his arrest Uh, by the coup leaders in Sudan on October the 25th. He told uh, Al Intabaha on Saturday evening uh, that the Khartoum airport authorities informed him of a travel ban decision issued by the Sovereignty Council. I was on my way to Cairo to pay a visit to my sick sister to check on her health. They told me that I was banned from traveling, and they returned my passport after the plane took off, he said the leading member of the Sudanese uh, Congress Party and the FFC coalition underscored that the ban order should be issued uh, by the Public Prosecution Office, not the Sovereign Council. He further stressed that the constitutional document that ensures freedoms has not uh, been suspended. The coup leader and commander-in-chief of the Sudanese Army on Friday said that the state of emergency imposed after the coup would be lifted at a meeting of the would-be formed Council of Ministers and the National Security and Defense Council. In a related development, Wajdi Saleh, former member of the Empowerment Removal Committee, told Al Jazeera on Saturday that he was interrogated during his detention over charges of inciting discontent and rebellion among the armed forces. On uh, November the 21st, Al-Bahan signed a political agreement with Prime Minister Abdallah Hamdak providing, among others, uh, to immediately free all of the political detainees. Uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers and magazines and journals and research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at Pan-African News, 
www.thatblogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, by going to uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal, not only can you have access uh, to uh, today's uh, program uh, for Sunday, December 5th, uh, 2021, uh, you can also uh, have access to well over a 1,000 other archived editions of uh, the Pan-African Journal. The programs can be shared with other potential listeners by merely copying and pasting the links into emails and sending those emails out to other potential listeners. Programs can also be shared by copying and pasting links on blogs and websites, as well as the links being shared on social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. This is Abayomi Azikawe. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. One would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? How long have you hated your white teacher? Who told you you love your black preacher? Do you respect? Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin People Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And love for our nation would make a better society Now some of us Would rather cuss And make a fuss Than to bring about A little trust But we shall overcome I believe someday If you'll only listen To what I have to say And how long have you had Your white teacher Your black preacher Can you respect Your brother's woman friend And share with black folks Not of kin I say now people Must prove to the people A better day is coming For you and for me With just a little bit more Education And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, 
Which would you prefer to be right? And if you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brothers? If there was no day or night, which would you prefer to be right? If you had a choice of colors, which one would you choose, my brother? Welcome back. The music of the impressions, uh, choice of colors. And uh, right now we want to move into a interview from the Black News Channel. Uh, done uh, with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones on the uh, ideological and political attacks on the 1619 Project, which has now been transformed into a book uh, from a a New York Times uh, supplement, which was extremely popular uh, two and a half years ago when it was released. Let's listen in uh, to this interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones. Welcome back to Black News Tonight. If there is one person about whom we've done maybe the most reporting at Black News Tonight, it is hands down Nicole Hannah-Jones. We've done in-depth interviews about her critically acclaimed 1619 project and on the tenure controversy at the University of North Carolina. See, a day goes by without somebody from the right attacking her. The most recent feud took place on Twitter when the conservative commentator Megyn Kelly who is a vocal opponent of critical race theory, among other things, was jubilant on Twitter, celebrating another victory against the teaching of the theory. To this, Hannah Jones tweeted, I guess it's good you no longer pretend to be a journalist anymore. Be well. I love the be well. That's just a perfect way of getting rid of somebody. Megan then tweeted in response, says the woman who quietly tried to cleanse her dishonest reporting without even having the spine to own her shameful errors. This is why scholars from the L and the R uh, have panned your work as anti-historical and dangerous. It belongs nowhere near K-12 education. Ugh, the hate continues. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones fired back with saying, if only I'd done penetrating journalism like special report Santa is white. (laughs) Game, set, match. That ended the Twitter back and forth. and uh, anyway, let's move on, because I want to get into the back and forth because it's ridiculous. And I got more interesting things to talk about with the incoming professor of <laughs> race and journalism at the Mecca, Howard University, Professor Nicole Hannah-Jones. Welcome <laughs> to Black News Tonight. Thank you, Professor. Uh, happy to be on with you. Talk to me about sort of, first of all, what do you make of the assaults on your, not just your work, but your character, your intelligence, your integrity? I mean, the right has been just beating up on you for months now. What do you make of it? Why why now? Um, Your guess is as good as mine, because I've been writing about racial inequality for 20 years. I've spent the last you know, 10 years of my career writing about racial segregation and housing uh, through schools that is uh, policy of the government. Um, But I think what was so unsettling about the 1619 Project was to have a project that became very popular, that really tried to unsettle 
disestablished narratives about American exceptionalism, uh, this idea that we were a nation founded on freedom, um, that, that was really marking our origins, not with 1776 and the Declaration, but with 1619 and the introduction of African slavery into the colonies. Um, and so I think this has become clearly part of the culture wars, and the 1619 Project is being used as a tool to stoke white resentment. And I am in the face of the project. I'm the black woman who got this project uh, published in the New York Times. Um, I, I, I don't think I'm the image of what someone expects a New York Times reporter to look like or or to uh, comport herself. So I think I've just become a target and, and a symbol in the culture wars. A big part of the culture wars these days is critical race theory. How do you feel about being lumped in with critical race theory? I've had so many debates on this show alone about people who can't even name uh, a critical race theorist, but when they try, they say your name. Uh, it seems like you're being lumped in with a, a broader nationwide war against teaching anything about race in, in public education. Uh, what do you, how, how do you make sense of that piece of it? Well, one, as we know, um, the fight against critical race theory is just a contrived uh, Republican propaganda campaign, and we need to call it what it is. The fact that we're all talking about critical race theory in education shows how successful this campaign has been. And so my project is, of course, being lumped in with that because uh, this is, again, um, an effort to really soak resentment. It's, it's to use uh, kind of the, the, the tensions in a pluralistic society um, in order to pass a larger agenda, which I think we're seeing also with uh, the efforts to restrict the vote. So when people have decided that they're going to use critical race theory as a scare tactic to stoke resentment, they're not caring what critical race theory is. They're not trying to be factual with their arguments here. They're just trying to lump as many, quote-unquote, scary things together as possible. The 1619 Project was clearly not critical race theory. It's a work of journalism that uses history to draw conclusions about uh, the, the present. But I have studied critical race theory as many uh, scholars of, of race in this country have, um, and we know that it's not being taught in K-12. As you've demonstrated on your own show, uh, no one's been able to produce a teacher, right, a, a fifth-grade teacher, an 11th-grade teacher who's teaching critical race theory. It's just become a stand-in for talking about race, talking about history, um, for truthful accounting of America. And uh, after we saw last year with these global protests around uh, black rights with the first time in the history of the Black Lives Movement where a majority of white Americans were supporting the movement, where you started to see a significant number of white Americans saying, okay, maybe inequality is not just about individuals and their choices. Maybe there are larger systemic issues at play that we should address. It's not then incidental that that's when we start to see this massive pushback uh, against teaching about racism, teaching about structural inequality. And as you read these laws, it's very clear. The laws are not saying uh, we need to ensure an accurate accounting of history. What they're actually saying is we need to ensure that we're not teaching uh, the racial history of our country, because if we teach that, kids might take that to think that our country is racist, which is kind of uh, the giveaway right there. Your work, of course, is showing the racial history of America and the lingering impacts of uh, slavery on contemporary American society, among other things. Uh, what do you say to the people like Megyn Kelly who say that your work is anti, excuse me, that is anti-historical and dangerous? What do you say to that? 
Uh, I don't really have a response to someone like Megyn Kelly. Um, she's not actually worthy of me responding to, frankly. Fair enough. Um, when when people talk about anti-CRT, they say that they don't want cancel culture, that, that people, those of you who are doing critical race theory, you crazy race theorists, you journalists, you historians, all you people, you're trying to cancel white people. Uh, but it's interesting because as these anti-CRT bills are passing in many states, someone like you is actually the one that's being canceled. You're the one who would, who would not be allowed on the curriculum. You're the one who would likely be banned from speaking engagements. Your work would be banned. Uh, my sense has always been that the right is the one doing the canceling here. How, how do you make sense of the, the cancel culture narrative that's also emerging? I mean, it's, it's the height of hypocrisy, right? Because the same people who are arguing against cancel culture by private people, by private business, uh, are using the levers of the state. And this is what I think is very critical, right? This is not just, you know, a company saying, we don't like this person's racial views, so we're not going to hire them anymore. This is, this is uh, politicians using the lever of the state to censure and ban materials that they disagree with. Um, they are trying to legislate against the work of American journalism, which is the 1619 Project. They're trying to outlaw certain words and concepts from being taught. Uh, as, as the writer uh, Kim Snyder said, these are memory laws. These are laws to control what we think, uh, what ideas we can expose our children to in our understanding of this country. So it's, it's the height of hypocrisy. Um, anyone who is concerned about cancel culture and the First Amendment, whether you love or hate the 1619 Project, should be opposed to efforts by the government to prohibit and ban uh, speech and ideas that they don't like. And that's what we're seeing happening here. Um, these laws, you know, what, what, what's so interesting to me is if you actually study critical race theory, and this is how we know this is a, a fake controversy, if you actually study critical race theory, it's not about individuals at all. In fact, it's, it's trying to show the opposite, which is that whether or not individual white people are racist, we have a country where racism is embedded in the structures. And so the structures replicate inequality, whether you personally are racist or not. That's not about saying that individual white people are racist and white people are inherently racist. It's saying that we are a country where that is just a factual, right, argument, where racism was embedded in the laws. That's just fact. Where racism was embedded in our politics. That's just fact. Where racism was embedded in our, embedded in our institutions. That's just fact. So I, I, again, the fact that we're even talking about it speaks to how successful this, this campaign has been. But I argue, you know, our, this past, the racism, uh, the anti-blackness, the legacy of slavery, that is just the facts of our history. They are shaping our country. They are shaping our political systems, our, our laws, our cultural institutions, uh, our social interactions, whether we acknowledge that past or not. But if we don't teach that past, we actually don't have an ability uh, to understand what's happening in our country and certainly to do something about what's happening in our country. And what they're really trying to do is control uh, how we conceive of ourselves as Americans um, and to really use uh, anti-critical race theory laws, anti-1619 project rhetoric to justify why they're passing these other laws that are trying to really proscribe the franchise and our basic rights. Absolutely. Nicole, stay with me. we got much more coming up uh, on Black News Tonight with Nicole Hannah-Jones. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Black News Tonight. I'm back with the Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and the inaugural night chair in race and journalism at Howard University, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Nicole, you go by the Twitter handle Ida Bay Wells, which I think is so fresh. Um, talk to me about, about what Ida, Ida B. Wells means to you as a journalist and how her legacy influences you. Yeah, sure. So uh, Ida B. Wells is the template. She was the first black woman investigative reporter that I'd ever learned of. Uh, she was a woman who, uh, you know, was an innovator of intersectionality. She fought for civil rights. She was a co-founder of the uh, NAACP. She fought for women's rights, a feminist, a suffragist. She was one of the first women to hyphenate her name when she got married. And she was an investigative reporter who um, innovated investigative reporting techniques. She's considered uh, the mother of data reporting. Um, at the time when Ida B. Wells began her journalism career, there was no accounting for how many black people were being lynched in this country and no real investigations outside of the official white narrative that black people were being lynched uh, because they were raping women and uh, committing crimes. And she really began to investigate and uh, in the red record, uh, to produce the first actual uh, data on the number of lynchings and the reasons why these lynchings were occurring. So for me, um, she, you know, this was a woman who spoke her mind, who uh, was often castigated in the press by the black press and the white press because she didn't stay in her place, and who was the epitome of the type of journalist that I wanted to become. So I've long used her as a template. Uh, I've talked about Ida B. Wells for years. I found years I founded an organization, co-founded, I'm sorry, an organization in 2015 called the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting, where we train and mentor uh, investigative reporters of color. And um, I've just uh, been so glad to see that her name uh, has become, once again, part of the national lexicon, because like so many black women, uh, she's been written out of both the history of civil rights, the history of women's rights, and the larger American story. But now she, she's uh, retaking her rightful place. As, as her name uh, moves back to the center of our public conversation, how about those methods? Do you see the kind of courageous, field-changing journalism in the mainstream, not just among black journalists, but across the board these days. Is, is media still capable of doing that kind of work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are seeing that type of work happening all the time. I mean, I think about the project on policing by Kimbriel, uh Kelly, and uh, Wes Lowry when they were both at the Washington Post. And similar, I mean, almost uh, very much um, comparable to what Ida B. Wells was doing, they also began to tabulate the number of black people who were being killed by police. We didn't have a real record of that either. So I still uh, certainly see a lot of data reporters, a lot of journalists who are doing really muckraking reporting and holding power accountable uh, and, and in that tradition and the tradition of a lot of other investigative reporters. It's, it's alive and well for sure. Uh, a little while ago, uh, New York Post resurfaced a Vox podcast that you did back in 2019 with Ezra Klein, where you were talking about Cuba, and you said that Cuba had, quote, least, the least inequality between black and white people, largely due to socialism. Obviously, in the last week or so, we've seen protests in Cuba. Uh, what do you make of the statement you made then, and what do you make of what's going on now? So, one, that was a much 
you know, as the right is prone to do, they, they took a very uh, small clip out of a much larger conversation. It was a conversation about uh, school integration and racial inequality. And Ezra Klein asked me, you know, is there any country that's, that's getting it right? And my context was, well, it's hard to compare the United States to many other countries because uh, many of the European countries that have less inequality don't have racial diversity like we have. They don't have a history of chattel slavery. So you have to look to the Americas and countries that have a history of chattel slavery. And then many of those countries are heavily black. You know, most of the, the islands in the West Indies, there's not a large enough white population to talk about integration. So if you look in the context of uh, our hemisphere in the Americas, in countries that had a history of chattel slavery, um, and you look at certain indicators, uh, how integrated are the schools, what's the life expectancy gap between black and white people, um, things like universal health care, universal college, that of the multiracial countries in our hemisphere, Cuba has the least um, inequality in those areas. This was, and that is because of socialism, because the government controls all of those things. The government has said, if you need health care, you will, we will provide it. We don't have that in the United States. When the government controls every school that you go to, the government can decide that you will go to the same schools together because there's not an option for private schools. So this was a complex, nuanced conversation, and they took a single soundbite. And mind you, this was in 2019, which is prior to the protests that are happening right now. I think this just speaks to uh, the way that the right weaponizes sound bites out of context, um, that often this, these um, conservative media don't adhere to the same ethical standards of journalism where you can't just, you know, the New York Times can't just take a quote out of context and write a whole article around it without providing that context, without contacting the journalist or, or the person who said that. Um, and it wasn't um, in any way uh, promoting Castro. It wasn't in any way promoting socialism. We have to just be able to have a factual conversation. I mean, this is just a fact. Cuban, black Cubans have a higher life expectancy than black Americans. That's just a fact. Um, so I guess, you know, I don't know how to have a conversation in a nuanced way um, when you always have to be afraid that someone is going to weaponize a single sentence in a much more a complex conversation and use it against you. But the other thing is, uh, of course, what no one is saying is that so much of uh, the economic problems that Cubans are suffering from have come from this decades-long blockade that the United States has had against Cuba. That is also just a fact. It's not a comfortable fact. It's not one that speaks, you know, in the American uh, narrative about freedom and democracy. But they have a hard time getting the goods and services that they want because we don't, our country does not allow those uh, goods to come into Cuba. We don't allow Cubans um, to send the types of remittances remittances home that other uh, nation, other immigrants are allowed to send. So there's, it's a complex story. And, um, you know, I just got caught up in, I, I think that there are people now who are paid to go through every conversation I have, uh, every talk I've given, and try to find uh, something that they can uh, try to use against me. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for speaking facts. This, this was just a, a factual interpretation of, of what the data shows. Nicole, I only have 30 seconds, but what does what toll does that take on you personally? You know, now you've gone from being a great journalist to a, a publicly celebrated great journalist uh, who's under attack. When you see these things, misrepresentations of your words, snippets, the, the snooping, looking for you to make a mistake, how, what kind of toll does it take on you personally? 
um, it's hard. I mean, I'm a human being, and I actually uh, take a great deal of pride in the work that I do. I, I'm very careful. I work very hard on it. Um, my journalism really matters to me. Um, and so to become kind of this um, figure that is constantly villainized, constantly uh, misrepresented, where people try to not just uh, disparage my work, but disparage me as a, as a person, I mean, um, you know, I tweeted about this yesterday, the type of um, racist emails, sexist emails I get, people threatening my life, people threatening to burn down my mother's house because of how I'm portrayed in the media, um, in conservative media. It, it's taxing. It's, it's, it's not easy. Um, some days are, I deal with it better than others, but I also strongly understand um, if I wasn't doing work that mattered, if the work that I was doing was not uh, unsettling uh, people who are used to holding power and controlling the narrative in this country, I wouldn't be facing the type of opposition that I have. And this is why I look to someone like Ida B. Wells, and I know, you know she had it so much worse than I do. Uh, I'm very blessed compared to what so many of our ancestors have been through. Uh, so I feel like they they have uh, fortified myself, and I know I know you probably feel the same way, right? They have fortified us to withstand whatever it is that comes our way. Amen. Nicole, thank you for your work, thank you for your courage, and thank you for spending some time with us on Black News tonight. Thank you. All right. Let us know what you're thinking. Hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BNC News. And be sure to visit the website, bnc.tv, and go to BNC News and subscribe to our channel. Welcome back, and uh, that was an interview with uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, the founder and creator of the 1619 Project. Uh, she uh, did this as a journalist uh, for the New York Times uh, newspaper. Uh, the project has now been turned into a book. And uh, she was just discussing uh, many of the attacks uh, leveled against her uh, by the right wing in the United States. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December the 5th, uh, 2021. Uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, and that was Detroit's own Anita Baker with the tune entitled Rules. And uh, right now we want to listen to a briefing from the uh, Secretary General of the South African Communist Party, uh, Dr. Bladen Zamande, on the upcoming uh, South African Communist Party Central Committee plenum. Uh, let's listen in. The SACP is currently briefing the media following its Central Committee plenary uh, after the local government elections. Let's take a listen in. Finance pushes auctioning off the broad spectrum with no mention of a set aside for the state to pioneer national development imperatives so that government can be able to fulfill its constitutional obligations, including ensuring national security. We call on the Minister of Finance to revise this problematic stance. The key task facing the SACP and the working class from now on is to intensify the struggle on two fronts, as we have said, against neoliberalism and its policy regime, not least its agenda of austerity, as well as state capture networks, which are characterized by rampant corruption. We are saying that the CSACP and the working class will continue to expose and tackle deception by neoliberal elements as well. What is of concern to us as well is that those who are pushing for neoliberal methods, they do this on the grounds that they are fighting state capture. We are saying you can't fight state capture with neoliberal methods because at the end of the day, the net impact of these two types of activities is actually the impoverishment of the working class and enriching the already very wealthy in society. The SACP will also push for the development and expansion of the publicly owned economic sector to take care of the material needs of the people. The working class needs to unite behind the strategic imperative and to defend the publicly owned economic sector against neoliberal and state capture agendas. Joint action by the progressive trade union movement remains essential. As a matter of fact, this central committee said the SACP must prioritize supporting joint actions by the trade unions across federations to fight common battles. They can't afford to be divided when the capitalist bosses are united in making profits at all costs. The SACP will strengthen its efforts and engagements with the progressive trade union movement in this regard to make sure that workers pursue their common interests. Convening a joint summit of the progressive trade union movement is an imperative and can contribute positively to taking this proposal of building worker unity forward. In the same manner, the Central Committee tasked the Politburo and the Secretariat of the SACP to initiate a process to convene a conference of left forces. This action is in line with the SACP's resolution to build a popular left front. The conference of the left should reflect on the multiple crises facing South Africa, 
the persistent high rate of growing unemployment, poverty, inequality, and the associated crises of families struggling to make ends meet, as well as this conference of the left must focus on what is to be done with regards to the energy crisis and the climate change crisis that is facing us. This, we hope, will serve as a platform to expand consultation on a joint program of action and mobilization. As the SACP, we are saying, we've been arguing for our own policy perspectives in front of the television for too long now. It's time really for more action. Not that we have not taken action in the past, like we have done with the financial sector and with land issues. But we want to intensify this by broadening and bringing together the forces that have got a common interest with us in realizing the defeat of both the state capture agenda and the neoliberal agenda. On the just energy transition, the SACP invited Comrade Barbara Chrissy in her capacity as the Minister of Forestry, Fisheries and Environmental Affairs. She made a very good presentation on the environment, climate change and the just green transition. The Minister also briefed the Central Committee about the outcomes of COP26, the Conference of Parties on the Environment and Climate Change that was recently held in Scotland. The SACP commits to support the progressive thrust of the government's program on this front towards achieving net zero carbon emissions whilst also mobilizing progressive forces on the ground. But at the same time, the Central Committee said, we must not allow developed countries to set an agenda on climate change that simply suits them and at the expense of developing countries. Investment in ESCOM and a state capacity in the renewable power generation capacity and building social ownership in energy provision is a key imperative for a just transition. Putting profit-seeking interests before the people using energy as a community will only result in unjust practices. Doing so will condemn the state to a procurer exposed to the whims of the private wealth accumulation market. Energy will not be produced to serve the people if it is privatized, and it will not advance national development imperatives. In short, and to put this simply, renewables, for instance, in energy, must not be the exclusive preserve of the private sector. ESCOM and communities must actually be involved in the areas of energy and renewable energy, so that this is not just like a private sector-driven thing. Protecting workers and creating alternative employment must be part of what is called the just transition. Any transition that will cause misery through retrenchments, amongst others, and leaving ghost towns behind will be unjust. Also important, while considering international development, South Africa must plan the transition from the standpoint of our national priorities and our challenges. On the unemployment crisis, unemployment rose in the third quarter of 2021 by 0.5% to 34.9%, affecting 7.6 million active unemployed work seekers. 
Looking at the total picture represented by the ex- what is known as the expanded definition, South African unemployment crisis is worse than is depicted by the officially preferred narrow definition. It is a disastrous 46.6%, having increased by 2.2% in the third quarter of 2021. This affects approximately 12.9 million active and discouraged work seekers. This monumental disaster needs to be understood in all its dimensions, including race, gender, age, and geography. In this way, South Africa will inform its interventions in a much better way. Just to explain this, unfortunately, and but scandalously, near 30 years after our democratic breakthrough, unemployment is strongly marked by racial and gendered features. African unemployment is at a shocking 51.1%. That is amongst the African people. Unemployment among all women is at 55.1% compared to 42% for men. Youth unemployment is a catastrophic 77.4% for those aged between 15 to 24 and 55.3% for those aged 25 to 34 years. Geographically, the worst unemployment levels are in rural areas. The former Bantu stands are the hardest hit. They still resemble their status under apartheid as labor reservoirs for monopoly capital and productive activity in metropolitan areas. In the former Bantu stand areas, for instance, there is no industrial development and notable job opportunities. There is little, if any, at all opportunities for sustainable livelihoods in these former Bantustan areas. You can smell poverty in the Bantustan areas, in particular, in the former Bantustan areas. Policies aimed at addressing the unemployment crisis must also be aimed at achieving transformation in terms of race, in terms of gender and youth and also to prioritize rural development so that we roll back uneven development and unequal distribution of investment and resources. On social policy and public employment programs, governmental timidity or worse still short-sighted austerity is simply unacceptable. When government introduced the COVID-19 social relief grant of a meager 350 rand to assist those aged between 18 to 59 who do not receive any social grant. There were over 9.5 million applications. This just shows the level of of desperation in our society. Some 6.5 million of these applications were eventually approved. Meager as it is, a certain level of relief nevertheless. But now the medium-term budget policy statement has announced that this extremely small grant will be terminated at the end of March. This will have the effect of leaving the millions of unemployed sinking deeper into deprivation and destitution with no alternatives amidst the worsening unemployment crisis and the economic impact of the emerging fourth wave of COVID-19. It is imperative that the widest range of working class and popular forces actively mobilize in the coming period for the social relief distress distress grant to be extended at least beyond March. And that the amount is significantly increased and that this becomes a first and rapid step towards establishing a universal basic income grant 
at the establishment of a comprehensive social security system. By the way, there is no contradiction and also there is no choice between the social relief grant and provision of money for education and skills development in order to empower especially young people to be able to make sustainable livelihoods for themselves. Both things need to be done. And some of the immediate intervention interventions should include scaling up of public employment programs, both to provide relief against unemployment and to expand the provision of skills development. Public employment programs will contribute positively towards establishing the right to work in our country. The SACP is going to be throwing everything into calling for and supporting and actively encouraging government to provide public employment programs because there are so many things that need to be done in our communities that require public employment programs like cleaning of our townships and villages and providing of social and economic structures in our townships and villages all those are important platforms for public employment programs. On taking forward the fight against COVID-19, we wish to salute, as the SACP, the work of South African scientists through genomic surveillance. This work has helped and even provided leadership to the entire world in identifying new variants of COVID-19. The Central Committee denounced the imperialists and other governments that have shut the borders of their countries against entry by South African and Southern African people. As if, by the way, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 originated in Southern Africa. The fact of the matter is that the spread of this virus right now is global. And in fact, the new variant may have come from anywhere in the world including from outside the African continent. This assumption that this came from the African continent is wrong. And in any case, we are closing the borders after the fact. And I feel like this time using, sorry for the language, the best description of what the advanced countries are doing. That they think they're going to have vaccines, vaccinate their populations, and leave the developing world to see for itself and hope to defeat COVID-19 and hope that they will close their borders, that won't work. According to a, a colleague of ours and a comrade of ours from the Communist Party of the United States of America, he said such an approach, it's like all of you, we are, we are in the swimming pool having a nice swim and then having a corner of the swimming pool being reserved for those who want to pee. That's what is actually happening. face of the situation. The SACP calls on all our people nevertheless to go out to vaccinating numbers as the best way to fight against this deadly virus whilst also at the same time maintaining the health protocols of physical distancing uh, washing our hands using sanitizers and wearing our masks. The SACP calls upon government to urgently also resolve the matter of medicines acquired by the South African National Defense Force from Cuba. The South African Health Regulatory Authority, 
the Central Committee said, must stop making statements on this matter of Cuban medicines to the South African National Defense Force. Must stop making statements that are insensitive, that in fact border on recklessness, and make their statements come across as if SAPRA is imposing a second blockade on Cuba after the United States. To actually say we're going to go and, 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 and impound these medicines and destroy them is offensive to the majority of the people of South Africa. That's not the role of a regulatory agency or any other agency of the state. We have diplomatic relations with the Cubans who sacrifice their lives to make sure that we have a democratic South Africa today. The Central Committee said we must communicate this statement very strongly. It doesn't take kindly to this. On international situation and solidarity, the SACP expressed its concern about situations of instability in the Southern African region. Besides political and economic challenges in Lesotho, Zimbabwe, Swaziland and Mozambique, the SACP is concerned about what seems to be an impending instability in Botswana. The tensions between the current president, President Masisi, and former president of Botswana, Ian Khama, pose a serious problem of instability in that country, if not watched carefully. We are also concerned that the South African Reserve Bank seems to be unfairly implicated in funds allegedly stolen in Botswana. We know that this is not the case and it must be corrected. SADC, we're calling upon it to pay close attention to this developing situation in Botswana so that it does not lead to instability. Our region cannot afford any more instability, and least South Africa, by the way, because every area of instability in the SADC region has got huge implications for South Africa in particular. We are calling for the intervention also, led by SADC, to be intensified in Swaziland, especially the establishment of inclusive dialogue processes amongst all political formations. This, we say, must be expedited so that a negotiated transition to democracy is realized in Swaziland. The SACP also denounces the call made by imperialist countries to boycott the Beijing Winter Olympics in China, ostensibly as part of the new Cold War waged by the United States on China. This is all because of China's impressive economic growth and development that is advancing to surpass the United States economy. The SACP wishes to pledge its solidarity with the people of Sudan in their struggle for democracy, the people of Western Sahara in their struggle against occupation by Morocco, and the people of Palestine against occupation by the apartheid re Israeli regime. We also reiterate our solidarity with Cuba and saying that Cuba has a right to pursue its own economic program. Also our solidarity with the Venezuelan people, the Bolivian people and Nicaragua against U.S.-led imperialist aggression. 
We welcome the, re-ma- the re-emerging consolidation of and advances by left and progressive forces in Latin America, including in countries like Peru, Honduras, and Chile. This underlines our point that neoliberalism is not the solution, but the cause of the problems and challenges faced by the workers and poor in the world. Increasingly, the people of Latin America are rejecting these neoliberal programs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Pia. Let me invite questions uh, from our media colleagues. Thank you, uh, Dr. And uh, uh, you will be number two, also, Dr. Pat. Is there any uh, other questions? No. Let's, let's take your first there and uh, the uh, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank when you look and you speak about what you term the unholy alliances in the minority governments within the metros, still today no governments have been formed in these metros. There are no MNCs. What needs to be done in order for these metros to have effective governments being constituted by the coalitions that have been formed that will service the people. Secondly, <coughs> the statement speaks of the IFT. As a former student in northern KwaZulu-Natal, in Zimbabwe, someone who's worked with uh, many ANC leaders in that province to change the electoral fortunes of your governing party within that province, what does it mean when you see the resurgence of the IFP and particularly with the plan that they had to have an entire blockade of the northern provinces by taking all the district municipalities and local municipalities in order to launch an offensive to take over the province. As someone who's worked in ANC structures in that province, what does the local, the recent local government result mean for the future of that province of KwaZulu-Natal? And then lastly, you speak about disunity and lack of cohesion within the governing party. This has been pretty much in your statement for the past six or seven years. Is the ANC just simply irreparable and can't have any cohesion and must just simply implode? Thank you. Thank you, dear. Should I go ahead? Yeah, some guys. We knew that you always fire salvos, you know. <laughs> but that's your job. We respect that. Uh, precisely, the point we are raising about the failure of these minority governments in the metros to form a government underlines the point we are saying. It's a sign already that there's going to be huge instability because. It's, it's minority governments that are not forced on principles. They are based on an anti-ANC platform. Instead of being based on uniting for provision of services and changing the circumstances of the workers and the poor of our country. It also shows the extent to which, of course, there's been fragmentation in the voting of the people, and we have explained partly 
the non-voting as well, non-voting bloc, that has led us to this unfortunate situation. On our side, we are saying, where we are the opposition, the ANC and its alliance partners, we must watch the situations there very closely, and we must have mass-based opposition, not for the sake of oppositionism, but to point out what is it that needs to be done correctly. That is going to be our responsibility. If you ask me what is to be done, that's going to be our responsibility. But we are in for a rocky period. There is no doubt about that because there is no principle. We've never had a party saying our whole aim of participating in the election was to dislodge the ANC. What kind of a program is that? A negative program. So the result is what we are seeing now. Unfortunately, such instability means worse for the ordinary people of our country who desperately need services. My comrades will add uh, on this. Uh, on the resurgence of the IFP, it's a sad development. Because, by the way, the ANC had made, and its allies, huge advances in KZN. 2019 and even in 2016, by the way. As the only party, really, that is capable, the African National Congress, of pursuing a progressive agenda. But again, largely, if we are to be honest, we need to be self-critical. The ANC needs to be self-critical in KZN together and its allies as to the reasons why we've actually lost so much ground. And it's a reflection of the problems that we've actually said. Factionalism, deep internal divisions, marginalization of the alliance, and we've already, we've always, you are right, been warning as the SACP, that those of our comrades in the ANC who think that the ANC can make advances by alienating its allies, the SACP and COSATO, are wrong. They must disabuse themselves of that. Partly of what we are seeing is precisely this. But also we are saying is that there is an, an economic interest that has been growing inside the structures of the ANC as well. What we call a bureaucratic and parasitic petty bourgeoisie, which is capturing municipal budgets for purposes of personal accumulation. We must face that. KZN also partly is a result of that because with that happening, there's been very poor provision of services. We must take to heart the message that is from our people. And we know this problem. The ANC itself has said it, by the way, which is good in its own assessment, you know. Let me just tell you one example. For me, somewhere when I was campaigning, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm taking long. It was in my hometown, in an area which is predominantly working class Indian community. They they point a building, you know, which is like the size of two RDP houses. They say, this is the third municipal campaign now. We are coming, over the past 10 years, we are coming to us to say we must vote for you. Look at that building. We have asked the municipality not to build, to demolish that building. In 10 years, the municipality can't demolish, let alone building, just to demolish that building. Now, those are some of the things that must be... There's nothing as easy as demolish to bridges. Now, those are some of the things we must accept as a movement. And that moving forward, we must not allow those things to happen. Those are some of the things that have cost us in KZN. 
Otherwise, how do you explain the advances we make before? And also, there's been a certain level of arrogance on our side in the movement and the distance that has begun to develop between ourselves and the people. That's what renewal must address. That's why we're saying we are supporting this effort of the ANC on, on renewal, which links to your last question. Is the ANC irreparable? We don't believe that the ANC is irreparable. But there is a huge challenge. A huge challenge. That's what we're discussing in leading this renewal. That is why also we are saying this renewal must not just be moralistic. It must be very concrete. How do we defeat factions? In fact, as the movement, we might as well accept that there can't be unity between the ANC and thieves who are hiding inside the African National Congress and our alliance. There can't be unity between those. Part of the renewal is to build a new cadership in our movement that is actually committed to addressing the interests of the people. We haven't lost hope. That is why we are saying, coming out of the Central Committee, one of the key challenges is to rebuild an ANC that has got confidence of the people. And we are calling on all communists and the workers in this country. Go into the structures of the ANC in your own right as members of the African National Congress and reclaim this movement. You know, let, let me just give you another example, Samgele, why we believe not only is that the ANC is not repairable, but why we need the ANC. This country need an, needs an ANC, a broad movement capable of uniting the widest range of forces behind building a non-racial, non-sexist, pro prosperous South Africa. All these other political parties, none of them are committed to that agenda. If you look at the DA, for example, the DA is fighting and uniting minority interests in the white, Indian, and colored communities out of fear of the African majority. They don't have a vision of building a non-racial and a better South Africa. And you need an ANC. Of course, you need a different ANC than where it is now in many of its structures. I don't know if my comrades would like to add on this. Let me take uh, the follow-up question. Yes, Mr. Zivane, in fact, you are from Harrisburg, in Plain Zulu, you will be there to help. But to, to go further... You know, turn a something. <laughs> to go <laughs> further, you, your statement speaks about the vaccines which were purchased in Cuba by the former Minister of Defense. <coughs> now we speak of parliament, not just the Minister of Defense. And how you speak of the problem imposing its views and a second blockade in Cuba. But you can sit there on the Monday and read that statement all you want. But you sit in cabinet. Your own president of the country and of the governing party has said nothing about vaccines from Cuba. In fact, he has gone even further with his administration. No vaccine from any of the BRICS countries is currently being rolled out in this country. We are seeing Western vaccines. Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson. Your own administration has had no confidence in the Cuban vaccine. So why defend the vaccine where you can't even persuade government to go and procure, and procure it? Thank you. Yes, uh, uh, yes. can I ask uh, Comrade Mopaila to take this yes. question? And uh, I will rest yes. for a moment. 
<laughs> and now, now Alex is deploying. <laughs> no, it's uh, okay. Uh, <coughs> you are very hot today. Uh, but thank you very much for that. Look, firstly, we think that uh, government really has to change its strategy on the utilization of uh, available vaccines. Cuba also has got a vaccine. But this medication we are talking about is not a vaccine, but an available antiviral medication uh, before COVID-19 vaccine was developed in the world. And it has been used extensively in the world in places like Italy, uh, Spain, Germany, China, Mexico, and other places. Uh, which, of course, it was important that uh, our defense was able to procure the medication in order to, to protect its soldiers, who were also being deployed in the front line in the fight against uh, COVID-19, particularly to enforce the lockdown measures. Therefore, then we have got a problem regarding how SAPRA managed that. But not only uh, this medication, there are several other medications of importance. Uh, for instance, Cuba has even won international awards on this medication, even from um, uh, World Health Organization, medication that cures sugar diabetes. We've got a serious crisis of sugar diabetes in this country. We amputate people. They've got medication that can stop amputation of people. Mm. We've provided the health department in the past, even with figures of amputations in our hospitals, that can be stopped almost as soon as it's, it's possible. They just don't care because it's medication from Cuba at the expense of our people. There was SAPRA and other such institutions, while they're playing an independent role uh, in our country, unfortunately, from outside you can see that they actually carry out the mandate <coughs> of Big Pharma, of uh, Western countries. The first vaccine on COVID-19 to be produced was Sputnik V from Russia. Uh, it has not been allowed for use in this country. You know what the reason? In the main, which is a lie, they say uh, it has got this uh, enzyme called AFD5, which is apparently immunosuppressant. And because for Africans there's too much prevalence of HIV and AIDS, therefore it cannot be used in this country. As if the majority of South Africans are HIV positive. This is completely nonsensical and unacceptable, particularly from a perspective of science. Then the, the, the Russians from the Gamalia Institute, a very reputable institute that over the years have even developed the first vaccines against Ebola, for instance. They then developed Sputnik Light, which doesn't have that so-called uh, 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 immunosuppressant. They still can qualify it. It was the first. In fact, they use Western medication, these vaccines, in this country on clinical trials when actually Sputnik, having passed or peer-reviewed by Lancet, had already passed all scientific measurements or scientific uh, uh, requirements as a vaccine, they never utilized it. So it's quite clear uh, SAPRA has become a problem and we'll have to take a fight against these problematic tendencies 
because as you are, you are, you are correctly saying, not only the, from BRICS countries, of course, yes, China has got multiple vaccines. Some of them, they are even available for us to use for free. Before we had enough of so-called uh, vaccines from these Western countries, which vaccines are now going to be imposed on our people? Our people must have the, the, the right to choose even what kind of vaccines they want to use. For instance, although I vaccinated with this Western medication, I had wanted to use the Sputnik, for instance, or even Soberona from Cuba, but the Sputnik was made first. They didn't allow it to be used here. China vaccine, Sinopharm, Sinovac, and so forth, they've got multiple vaccines, but they've closed the borders uh, for these vaccines in this, in, in this country. And I think, ultimately, we may have to require a forensic investigation on how they've allocated these vaccines as compared to how they've rejected other vaccines, particularly from non-Western countries or uh, non-capitalist uh, countries, for instance. That, that, that's the main thing. But of course, government will have to, to respond effectively to this and not only think that it is this institution. Because sometimes we, we, we give too much faith in this institution in the name of uh, pursuing our democracy. And we think that they will do good and then these institutions are captured by Western interests, not by the interests of the South African people. That's the thing that we have to resolve. So it has nothing to do, per se, for instance, with uh, uh, individually the presence of Comrade Nzimande in government. But we have called for government overall to create and build capacity to develop our own vaccines as a country. By the moment, vaccines that are here, they should not be discriminated on the basis of where they come from. Science is science. It's the same thing that we are discriminating. Well, that is the SSCP's uh, Central Committee plenary outcomes. We apologize. We seem to have uh, lost uh, the visuals uh, there, but certainly the sound coming out still. Uh, we're talking about uh, quite a few issues here. The SSCP raising at this particular point uh, the issue of vaccines coming to the fore. And we'll certainly catch up with uh, our senior reporter, Samkele Maseko, who, as you saw, is uh, in that audience at this time, uh, taking a listen to what's been discussed uh, by the SACP. We'll certainly be talking about the outcomes uh, of the plenary, um, the plenary committee meeting as well as uh, the issue of factionalism which was uh, just, uh, spoken about by the SACP Secretary General Bladen Zamande saying that that is one of the main reasons or the contributing factor to the ANC doing uh, not as well as they would have hoped during the local government election uh, results. And the SACP also lambasting the closing of borders by advanced nations. So a number of issues we then have to discuss uh, with our senior reporter as soon as we're able to get him out of uh, that meeting and have a chat with him. Uh, let's get Welcome back. And uh, that was a briefing uh, from the South African Communist Party uh, General Secretary, Dr. Bladen Zamande, on uh, the outcomes of the uh, SACP Central Committee plenary session that was held uh, just uh, several days ago. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment of our program. What a day, what a way to behave. Will I win? My heart says go, 
such a step would it bind me should I put all these things way behind me my love I've had Welcome back. Uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December 5th, uh, 2021. Uh, we just heard the music of Phyllis Hyman, uh, the tune entitled B1. Right now we want to move into Africa Live uh, for today, uh, December 5th. 
over our CGTN. Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Hello and welcome to China Global Television Network. This is The World Today. Amanda Vivian, Nairobi. Here are your top stories. China criticizes the United States for using democracy as a pretext to meddle in other countries' affairs. Indonesia steps up search and rescue efforts as a volcano eruption claims 13 lives and injures dozens others. And thousands march across Europe to protest against lockdown as Norway confirms at least 13 new Omicron cases. Well, our top story for this hour, Chinese President Xi Jinping has stressed the necessity of multilateralism in facing global issues and challenges. He made the comment at the opening ceremony of the Imperial Springs International Forum in Guangzhou. Xi said the global community needs to come together, manage global affairs through consultation and uphold the international system with the United Nations at its core. He said the world should continue to improve the global governance system and developing countries should be given a bigger role in international affairs. She also called on other countries to take part in China's global development initiative, prioritize development and boost cooperation on issues like poverty alleviation and COVID response. Well, China has published a report on the state of democracy in the United States. The report listed deep-rooted problems within the U.S. system, including systemic racism, unfair social welfare distribution, and its habit of using democracy as a pretext to intervene in the internal affairs of other nations. Liu Siri has more from Beijing. China released a report criticizing the U.S. democratic system, and the report highlighted the downsides of the U.S. democracy and revealed the disturbing outcomes of the U.S. political output on their democratic model. And China says democracy is humanity's universal desire, and to label uh, democracy as one type of system and political culture was undemocratic in, in itself. And they claimed many channels should be opened to realize a democracy that is in line with different cultures, perceptions, and circumstances. And China says an effective democratic system should not only have complete institutional procedures, but should also integrate democracy where processes are determined by results. Mentioning that if people's rights are only exercised when the election starts and then cast aside when it ends, then it's not a real democracy. China also accused the U.S. of seeking to meddle in the internal affairs of other countries under the banner of democracy and the abusing of democratic values to create division. And the report says that U.S. should bring themselves back on the right track and improve their democratic system, assuming more international responsibility. And China says the world is still facing the threat of the pandemic, so countries should abandon this zero-sum game mentality but cooperate with each other respectfully to overcome this difficult time. We're staying with that topic, and a recent survey shows that over half of young Americans believe that their country's democracy is, quote, 
in trouble or, or failing. It was conducted by the Institute of Politics at Harvard Kennedy School and based on a national poll of more than 2,000 Americans aged 18 to 29. The survey also suggests that only 7% of young Americans describe the nation as a healthy democracy. They also believe there's a 35% chance of a second civil war in their lifetime and a 25% chance that at least one state will secede. Well, China is hosting an international forum on democracy in the capital, Beijing. Participants from more than 120 countries, regions and international organizations are taking part, some in person and others online. CDTN's Wang Xiuang reports. Exploring shared human values, solving challenges facing the world. Hosted by Wang Xiaohui, the executive deputy director of the publicity department of the CPC Central Committee, the International Forum on Democracy is underway in Beijing, aiming to boost exchanges and the mutual learning and advance development of all the world's countries. As COVID-19 continues to ravage the world, humanity faces increasing deficits in governance, trust, development and peace. Democracy is the shared pursuit of all the people in the world. We should promote solidarity, cooperation and people's well-being and put an end to separatism, confrontation and social turbulence. The forum stresses democracy is not a decoration or an ornament. It has to work for the people. If we can't put people at the center and improve people's well-being, no matter how exquisite the rhetoric is, this kind of democracy is just deceiving yourself and others. Democracy practice can only be reliable when it is rooted in a country's soil. Democratic theory research can only be persuasive when it is based on conditions in its own country. Dignitaries and intellectuals from over 100 countries, regions and international organizations shared their thoughts on democracy's origins, values and principles, calling for multilateralism and cooperation. Although different countries have different social systems, they must focus on the common values of peace, development, fairness, justice, democracy, and freedom. Only by sharing resources and cooperating among all the states and peoples of the planet, we will find a solution to end the current situation of health emergency and economic crisis. Participants agree democracy can be adopted to meet the needs of modern societies, and a closer international cooperation is needed to face the challenges of our world today. Wang Sunwen, CGTN, Beijing. We head over to Indonesia now, where officials there say that 13 people have died and dozens are injured after the eruption of the Samara volcano on Saturday. President Joko Widodo has ordered a speedy response to find and treat the victims. More than 300 families took shelter after their houses were destroyed by volcanic ash and lava. The injured include two pregnant women who are under medical treatment at health centers. Search and rescue efforts are still underway. Local officials also reported that a land bridge connecting the hard-hit Lumajang district and the city has been destroyed. Samara sits on Indonesia's most densely populated island and is one of nearly 130 active volcanoes in the country. One of the survivors spoke about the moment the volcano erupted. 
Everyone was scared and running in panic because this eruption was much bigger than the eruption that occurred last year. Well, thousands of protesters have taken the streets across Europe as countries reimpose COVID restrictions. In Austria's capital, people marched to protest against lockdown measures and plans for mandatory vaccination. The parliament approved a decree on Tuesday extending the country's lockdown to 20 days. Protests were also held in Barcelona, Spain, where thousands demonstrated against COVID-19 certificates. The pass is required to enter selected public venues such as bars, restaurants and gyms. Similar rallies were held across Germany. In Berlin, small groups gathered to protest after a large demonstration was banned. In Frankfurt, police broke up a gathering of several hundred people for failing to wear masks or maintaining social distancing. Well, Norway has reported at least 13 cases of the new Omicron variant. This is the biggest outbreak among residents outside of southern Africa. The new infections are linked to a Christmas party in Oslo, which officials say infections could rise to over 60. Norway has since reintroduced nationwide restrictions to curb the spread of the virus. Similarly, the UK has also tightened testing for all inbound travelers after registering 160 Omicron cases, adding Nigeria to its red list. Our correspondent Andrew Wilson has more. At the St. Jordi public pool in Barcelona, the swimmers are still getting their laps in, but not without proof of vaccine status. The Spanish region of Catalonia now insists on a COVID pass for entry to all bars, gyms and restaurants. It's led to a surge in vaccine uptake, and after initial public confusion, the system is bedding in. It's very important to allow people to organize themselves. And now people arrive with the app properly downloaded in their smartphones, and things go well. But further north, worries over the Omicron variant are causing real alarm. Clinics in France and Austria are frantically vaccinating the younger generations. And in Belgium, similar concerns have persuaded the government to close schools early for Christmas. It's not their fault. It's not the fault of schools or youth activities. It's because that section of the population is not protected by a vaccine. So we have to take measures and seek to stop that engine. Hospitals are filling up and European countries are facing the difficult choices again of prioritizing COVID cases over other patients needing treatment that can be long overdue. In Germany, as the winter holiday resorts start counting the cost of, in some cases, 70% cancellations for Christmas, the government has finally raised the controversial issue of compulsory vaccination. Mandatory vaccinations will be discussed and voted on in the German Bundestag, and the government and the states will ask the Ethics Council to work out the recommendation by year's end. Mandatory vaccinations could then, if approved in Parliament, become effective around February 2022. At the moment, Belgium has the most infections in Northern Europe. Children must wear masks, but the bars are still open. Netherlands, Austria and Germany have tighter restrictions, painting an uneven picture. But there's no doubt that Europe is now in full agreement that this coming winter is going to be difficult across the board. Andrew Wilson, CGTN. Well, that's it for this edition of The World Today. CGTN's Angela Coppola in Johannesburg and Nabil Rafai in Accra standing by to bring you some of the top stories making headlines across Africa. That's coming up next in Africa Live. Please stay with us.
this is it. I'm just about to be shot. Tents here. Bottles are being thrown as they do so. Uh, we there are about three critical bridges here in Marawi. That's one of them. We're going to cross that bridge. As you can see behind me, police forces who are replying with gas. Gas just came here. So it's all begun now. Divisions leading the charge into West Mosul have brought us here. Just got to be careful here with some gunshots. This is where most of the fighting has been concentrated. This is the front line now after nine days of fighting. We're about two to three kilometers from We've the front line. clear view of this front line position. GTN, China Global Television Network. Gambia's President Barrow takes slim early lead as vote tallying continues. Sudan's transitional leader, General Abdel Fattah al-Buran, says military will exit politics after the 2023 elections. And South African health officials say 7% of COVID patients in Gauteng are below the age of 9. Hello and welcome. You're watching Africa Live. We're coming to live from Nairobi. I'm Hannah Vivier. Good more stories making headlines. 
In business, Kenya's treasury stays high food prices for second quarter inflation to 5.98%. And in your sport, North African giants Algeria, Egypt and Morocco advance the quarters of the ongoing 2021 FIFA Arab Cup in Qatar. We begin in the Gambia, where ballot counting is still going on. This is the first time that Gambians voted in a presidential election since former President Yaya Jame fled into exile. With counting already underway, authorities say early results in the one-round presidential election could be announced as early as Sunday. The election is being close, watched as a test of the democracy democratic transition in the Gambia, where former President Jameh ruled for 22 years after seizing power in a bloodless coup back in 1994. did not encounter any problem. The only issue we would have in the morning was everybody wants to vote. So everybody wants to come inside apart from that, and which is normal, because everybody wants to come and vote and uh, be like, okay, this is my voice, I need to vote, I need to decide. That was all. Apart from that, we do not encounter any issues. Well, for more on that story, we're joined by Lamine Kante, who is a journalist at iAfrica TV from Banjul, Gambia. Thank you so much for joining us, Lamine. Just speak to us about these reports that are reaching us, indicating that Gambia's President Barrow has taken a slim early lead as vote tallying continues. What's the latest on that? Yeah, in relation to that, um, the Gambian president, Adam Abaro, moments ago, like some three or four hours ago, uh, at the state house where he and uh, his party executive uh, are tallying the votes that they are, are tallying the results that they are receiving from their uh, polling agent across the country, they did a brief celebration, uh, which to many shows that um, their, uh, the party, the MPP, is likely to sweep the pools. I mean, just speak to us about some of the challenges that have been experienced during this voting period, and what do we expect in the final election results? Um, uh, when it comes to challenges, um, uh, I can say, uh, or I can confirm to you that there has not been major issues. The only thing that uh, happened right across some communities within the capital, uh, around the capital, uh, some polling stations which prior before they close uh, uh, votes, people were queuing, and then uh, some polling stations finally ended the, the counting of the, the, the ballots in, in those respective stations some three, four, five hours ago. So uh, when it comes to time was one of the main challenges uh, that some polling station face due to the number of voters allocated for that particular polling station in some communities, most popular communities uh, around the greater Banyan area. Thank you so much for all that. Lamine Kante, who is a journalist at iAfrica TV from Banjul, the Gambia. Let's not turn to Sudan, where the chair of the ruling council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, says the military will exit politics after the scheduled 2023 elections. This comes after Prime Minister Abdel Hamdak was reinstated to his post in November. Asatal has more. Sudan's first democratic election since the ouster of President Omar al-Bashir are set to take place in 2023. 
The chair of the Transitional Ruling Council, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, says after those elections, the military will step away from politics. When a government is elected, the armed forces and all organized security groups, I believe, will have no participation in political matters. This is what we agreed upon and this is its natural situation, for the armed forces to carry out its duties because there will be a government elected by the Sudanese people that expresses their will and hopes. The military had previously agreed to hand over reins of the transition to civilian authorities. However, in October, the military staged a takeover. Several civilian leaders were arrested, including Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. Thousands took to the streets. At least 44 people were killed, according to the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors. While Hamdok has since been reinstated as Prime Minister, many are calling for justice for those killed during the protest. Security forces stand accused of using live rounds of ammunition against demonstrators. Investigations have started since the start of the protests and the fall of the victims, and they never stopped. And it is not just to bring justice to the victims, but to know why the culprits did what they did, and also to bring justice to victims, because these are the basics that we agree upon in all state bodies. General Al-Burhan also added that the government supports the right to protest peacefully. Afatal, CGTN. Well, still with that story, we're joined from London by Matthew Benson, a researcher with a Peace and Conflict Resolution Evidence Platform at the London School of Economics. Thank you so much for joining us there, Matthew. What is your take on General Baran's announcement that the military will exit politics after the 2023 elections? Um, it's, it's good news. It's a move in the right direction. I wouldn't say it's the... Um it's not the outcome that protesters are wanting, and that needs to be listened to. But I think the key thing here is really to think through how is it that you can actually get people within government who are much more, so the military in particular, who have interests that are outside of democratic ones, um, to actually have a bargain that's going to work with, um, to have their interests contained in a way that gives them an option to leave the government. That's not going to make it so that everyone has to go and capture the state, um, which is to move away from politics as usual in Sudan with, and build a broader coalition. Matthew, what we can't forget, though, with the situation in Sudan is that there was a huge section of people that were in huge support of the military having this coup. So just speak to us about going forward now, the significance of this, the stability and democracy of Sudan, where the military is saying that they're going to exit the, 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 the government completely after the elections. Well, I think the key thing here, again, is to think through where, where is money, how is the state being financed, how is the military being financed, and where, how is it that you can actually have civilian oversight over these kind of things. And I really think through how is it that um, the, the, you can make it so that the military is not able to conduct business outside of the state and outside of civilian oversight. Um, that's the key thing here at the moment. And to really keep Sudan together and to prevent fragmentation is one of the biggest issues that I see moving forward. That, as well as making sure that peaceful protest continues and that civilians don't necessarily form, um, uh, that they remain peaceful, because if there is a push between the military and civilians and things move towards um, civil protection units and, and communities actually protecting themselves against violence, um, it could lead to much more conflict and these kind of things. So things really do have to make sure that they stay peaceful. Um, but more than anything, we have to have civilian oversight, and there has to be a push for people to exit without feeling that their only way option is to capture the state and to hold it uh, that, that, that's using it to their own interests rather than to those of the civilians. 
Thank you so much for that. Matthew Benson, a research associate in the Conflict Research Program at the London School of Economics. Well, South African health officials say that 7% of COVID-19 patients in Gauteng's province hospital are below the age of nine. This is a greater proportion of infections recorded than during previous waves of infection. Scientists have not yet confirmed any link between the infections and the new Omicron variant. Gauteng is said to be the epicenter of the current outbreak. Um, we're looking at data from um, admissions, particularly across private and public sector in Gauteng in the last 24 hours. Um, the under nines that are in hospital currently are sitting at 7%. So um, it is higher than what we've seen in the previous waves, um, but we are comforted by clinicians' reports that the children have mild disease. In the first wave, second wave, and even in the last wave, we used to have um, what you'd say classic sign of, I can't taste, I can't smell. And then we would worry that this patient probably has COVID. Um, but now some have fever, some don't. Um, in the third wave, we had a lot of patients who also had um, nasal congestion, uh, sore throat. And now more patients are saying my throat is scratchy more than sore. So the symptoms are very nonspecific and they mask and mimic um, symptoms of flu. Well, we're now joined by Angela Coppola, who is in Johannesburg, South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi there, Angela. What do we know about these stats on infections among children? Well, look, the latest data is from Friday's technical briefing, which was led by the Health Minister, Joe Putler. We understand that based on that data, the highest percentage of, children, of people testing positive were, in fact, children. We understand those kids are being taken to hospital as a precaution, and that's because their beds aren't in critical demand just yet. But Butler did ask the hospital administrators in Gauteng, which is the epicenter, as you mentioned, to source more pediatric beds as a precaution. The variant is more transmissible, we understand. We also understand that some doctors are suggesting it's more contagious than the beta or delta variants. And we saw, for instance, two large youth-centered events being cancelled. Not in Gauteng, one was in uh, KZN, KwaZulu-Natal, and one in the Western Cape. And that's after staff and matriculants tested positive there. It also appears that it's infecting youngsters who have been vaccinated. Anna? Well, just speak to us, Angela, of what's happening just in terms of how South Africans are responding to this. Because sometimes looking at all the reports, it does sound confusing. Because on one hand, you have so many countries around the world where there is so much panic about this new variant. And then you hear doctors from South Africa who are saying that the patients who are being treated, who are being found with Omicron, including children, are only showing mild infections. Just speak to us about how South Africans are responding to this new variant and, and the country being reported to be in this fourth wave. Well, look, kids are being infected, and those kids range between the ages of 10 and 14. We heard the earlier speaker talk about the, up to the age of 9, and that group makes up a significant amount of people. There's 15.8% of those new infections based on the data we've just seen. There's also a worryingly large group of kids under 5 that are testing positive as well. So anecdotally, we've heard of one hospital in Gauteng where the majority of those infected kids' parents are, in fact, unvaccinated. So authorities are hoping that this message will get through to them, that the people who aren't being vaccinated, who have younger kids, actually go out and get vaccinated. At the moment, kids from 12 years and older can get vaccinated without permission from their parents. 
<laughs> excuse me, and hopefully with the exams over and school holidays about to begin, we're expecting more youngsters to go and get vaccinated. We haven't heard if the age restriction, for example, is going to be lowered yet, as in many other countries, specifically the US. We're likely to get more information on that during the week uh, when President Ramaphosa returns from his uh, four-nation West African trip. So at the moment, it's a bit of cautious uh, optimism, if, if I had to put it that way, because the, the symptoms are less hectic than they were for uh, Beta and Delta, but there are more people being infected, but less people going into hospital and fewer people dying. Hannah. Thank you so much for all those details, Angela. Angela Coppola joining us from Johannesburg, South Africa, where the debate is raging over mandatory COVID-19 vaccines in South Africa. President Cyril Ramaphosa has ordered a task team to investigate if vaccines should be made compulsory. The country's in the grip of a fourth wave driven by the new variant. Since the beginning of the pandemic, South Africa has recorded close to 3 million infections and 90,000 deaths. Despite this, vaccination rates remain low, with just 25% of the nation fully vaccinated so far. CDTN's Julie Shire brings us that report. This is Cape Town's International Convention Center. It has the capacity to vaccinate 4,000 people a day. At the moment, it's one of many sites across the country that stands empty and has seen a drastic decline in people rolling up their sleeves to receive the jab. South Africa is looking into mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations to boost numbers as the highly mutated Omicron variant spreads. From my view, I think it has done a difference. So I think it will be best if all of us vaccinated. Because people are afraid, they will say that vaccination kills people. But I'm still alive. We're dealing with lives here and the future of South Africa and our economy itself. Because if we're not vaccinated, we're forced to do these lockdowns and whatever. For artists as myself, we're not doing shows, we're starving. Almost a quarter of 60 million South Africans are fully vaccinated. A further 17 million are halfway there with one dose. But at least half the nation is still hesitant. I'm turning 14. Eh? I never take a tablet or injection in my life, even Muti. If I've got flu, take two days and I'm okay. So I don't think I'll take the chip. While the debate rages on, hospitals are filling up mostly with the unvaccinated. Initial doubts over vaccine efficacy against Omicron have been replaced by optimism that it still protects against severe disease. So when individuals choose not to be vaccinated, it, does, it is of relevance to other people that have chosen to be vaccinated because their reckless actions eventually have got consequences. It's got consequences in them being more likely to transmit the virus. It's also got consequences in terms of them then demanding healthcare services which are under pressure. The Public Servants Association Trade Union, however, believes more needs to be done to allay fears. Government needs to go down to the people like with any other projects, including HIV AIDS, where they can reach out to South Africans, citizens, everyone in the country, so that people can be free and have information to vaccinate, as we also support the cause of vaccination, however, not mandatory. South Africa is not alone in mulling compulsory vaccinations. A growing number of countries in Europe and other parts of the world are considering the same as COVID-19 continues to wreak havoc two years on. Julie Sharat, CHTN, Cape Town, South Africa. While President Zuru Ramaphosa has indicated that the government will consider vaccine mandates, the government has been at pains to explain that this system would not compel South Africans to take vaccinations against their will. Instead, a passport system would restrict access to specific events and areas. 
This move is being supported by business. The country's largest trade union federation, COSATU, and some taxi associations. The South African National Taxi Council, Osan Tarko, is one of those associations. About 16 million South Africans use taxis to move around on a daily basis. When you look at our provinces countrywide, and I'm talking the taxi industry, uh, operators and drivers alike, uh, we are now standing at about uh, uh, you know 50%, and, and we believe that uh, uh, these numbers could rise if we were to invest and localize uh, the vaccination program into taxi ranks and so on and so forth, where people can be able, uh, while idling at the ranks, uh, can be able to vaccinate on their way to work or to their various destinations, can be able to vaccinate. Mulelekwa says the taxi industry has elected to lead by example to ensure that their commuters possibly follow suit. For instance, in the taxi industry, part of what we have done, we have said to the leadership of, of Santaco countrywide, provinces, the regions and local associations that we must, we must show example of the impact of, uh, the positive impact of vaccination, which is what you find in most provinces. In the provinces, most of the leadership of Santaco has vaccinated. Health and Life Insurance Discovery is one of the first Johannesburg Stock Exchange listed companies to introduce a mandatory vaccination policy. Discovery was swiftly followed by a growing number of firms that now include private hospital groups. Several universities have also followed suit. In the first uh, 20 days of uh, November, or you know, during the course of November, we've had yeah, 14, 14 infections in total. And when one thinks about uh, 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 an employee base of 12,000 people having 14 infections in November, we had a, a you know, I think somewhere in the order of yeah, 20 or 30 infections in, in, in October. That gives you some you know, sense on you know, how low the infections were across you know, the, the discovery base. Harness scrub, all of that to, to vaccination may well be uh, part of the trough, but you know, we certainly think that uh, vaccination has played a role there. The COVID-19 infection rate in various parts of South Africa is on the rise as scientists work hard to understand the new Omicron variant. Yudhisan Jamila for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. Well, let's not take a short break and return more on Africa Live, including. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa kicks off state visit to Ghana. And we look at how cyclists in Tanzania's capital, Dar es Salaam, are promoting cycling in an effort to combat climate change. Welcome back to Africa Live. Well, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has begun a two-day working visit in Ghana. It's part of his tour of four West African countries, including Nigeria, Cote d'Ivoire, and Senegal, to strengthen bilateral and economic ties. CDTS Nabil Ahmed Rafai reports from Accra. President Ramaphosa's visit seeks to boost trade and investments between South Africa and Ghana. 
and an inauguration of a binational commission here in Accra is expected to deepen ties between the two countries. Ghana and South Africa will also sign bilateral agreements to further boost economic relations. More than 200 South African-owned businesses in the telecommunications, mining and retail are established in Ghana. President Ramaphosa will take part in a South Africa-Ghana business forum during his visit to discuss how to advance investments. While many African countries still have their land borders still shut due to COVID-19, President Ramaphosa hopes to start a discussion with Ghana's president on the need to safely open borders in order to boost intra-African trade under the Continental Free Trade Agreement. The South African president will leave Ghana on Sunday and continue his working visits in Senegal. Nabil Ahmed Rufai, TGTN, Accra, Ghana. Well, for a continuation of that story, Nabil now joins us to follow up on Ramaphosa's visit to Ghana. Hi there, Nabil. What is President Ramaphosa's itinerary for the next two days? Well, Hannah, uh, today he wraps up his visit to Ghana and the main thing he'll be doing will be to uh, lay a wreath in memory of Ghana's first president, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, at the Kwame Nkrumah Museum here in Accra. Uh, after that, he would be uh, addressing a South African and Ghana business forum. Uh, we know that uh, this visit is seeking to deepen the economic ties between Ghana and South Africa. So um, he will be addressing the I mean, players within the uh, business environment uh, owned by South Africa and also Ghanaians. Uh, we know that South Africa has a lot of companies here in Ghana and South Africa is Ghana's largest foreign direct investor. So he will be addressing uh, these players in the industry to see how further, um, I mean, both countries can deepen uh, trade and investment relations. Um, later, um, President Okufado would host a luncheon in honor of uh, President Ramaphosa, and then later in the day, uh, he would leave Ghana. So uh, it's just a packed program for him today uh, as he wraps up his visit here in Ghana. Nabil, just speak to us about the kind of relationship Ghana and South Africa have and how that's to develop going forward. Well, uh, both Ghana and South Africa have enjoyed good relationship for many years and um, President Ramaphosa is seeking to deepen this particular tie and one of the key things he's trying to do, both the uh, presidents of Ghana and South Africa are trying to do to further strengthen this relationship is by the inauguration of the Binational Commission. Uh, this idea was mooted sometime in 2019 uh, when he paid a working visit to Ghana and um, those agreements uh, were signed but then uh, during the second visit uh, it was inaugurated to make it uh, fully uh, functional. So this binational commission would be looking at both countries uh, mean way forward in terms of uh, trade investments and also uh, bilateral relationships and will be updating themselves now and again uh, so um, things would go well for both countries. Now, um, yesterday um, Ghana and South Africa signed um, agreements in relation to the agriculture sector, uh, transport sector, and migration. 
as well as gender. Now, these four key uh, sectors uh, would lead to the development of both Ghana and South Africa and their respective uh, ministry in terms of the agriculture, transport, uh, 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 gender, and uh, mining. A uh, migration uh, will be, uh, I mean, seeking to boost investment in both countries. So, uh, as both countries enjoy good relationship, they are looking to take it a step further by some of these agreements that they've been signing, and um, that's the key uh, reason uh, why President Ramaphosa has come to Ghana. Thank you so much for all that, Nabil. Nabil Ahmed Rafai speaking to us from Accra, Ghana. Let's head over to Tanzania now, where cyclists there in the commercial city of Dar es Salaam are promoting bike riding as an alternative to vehicles with the aim of fighting the effects of climate change. Rising temperatures, longer dry spells, more intense heavy rainfall, and sea levels rising make Tanzania the 26th most vulnerable country in the world to climate risk. CGTN's Isaac Lukando has more. Away with vehicles and in with bicycles. The Dar es Salaam Cycling Association is promoting bike riding as a lifestyle in Dar es Salaam. Touting its environmental and health benefits, the association wants more of Dar es Salaam's 6 million residents to use bicycles. Uh, now we have middle class who ride the bike. And this, this is the only ride as a means of exercise. But we want to see more people to ride a bike as a uh, way of commuting. Like, you know, you cycle to work, you cycle to, to the market. You know, that's the thing we are looking for. According to the association, residents of Dar es Salaam spend an average of 43 days every year commuting in cars. Riding more bicycle, it argues, will lower vehicle emissions and reduce the effects of climate change, which have the government increasingly concerned. Today, water levels in the ocean are rising. Our brothers on the island of Pemba are in a dire situation, and there are also other islands that are in danger of disappearing. According to the World Health Organization's guidelines, the air quality in Tanzania is considered moderately unsafe. The Dar Cycling Association believes less cars on the roads will translate into cleaner air for the country's largest city. Bike riding, while common in other parts of Tanzania, is not so popular in Dar es Salaam. Despite the proposed benefits, getting residents to ditch their cars in favor of bicycles might be a tall order. Those already sold on the benefits of bike riding are eager to share their knowledge. In using a bicycle, people will get to work early and they will arrive having exercised and therefore healthier. Bike riding helps keep the environment clean because then you aren't using fuel and so the environment is conserved. To accommodate more bicycles, the association is advocating for more bike lanes in the city. With fewer vehicles on the roads, they believe a greener, safer future could be realized. Isaac Lukando, CGTN, Dar es Salaam. Meanwhile, Tanzania has launched a second phase of the construction of its bus rapid transit system in Dar es Salaam. The project is aimed at reducing traffic congestion in the commercial capital. It's being done by Chinese construction company Sino Hydro Corporation. The BRC is expected to promote economic activities. Tanzanian government estimates that 84% of Dar es Salaam residents rely on public transportation in their daily activities. The congestion in public transport has been a major challenge for Dar es Salaam, thus affecting the social and economic activities of the people. From that challenge, the government saw the need to come up with this project. 
The government expects that the completion of this construction will bring relief to the congestion and road accidents. When this project is completed, it will catalyze development in this region and to the southern regions of the country. Your business days is coming up after this show break, including 